I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. Public Domain Movie Month. Yeah. An entire month devoted to public domain movies, which are movies that through accident or design have had their copyright expire, so you can watch them for free on the interwebs. And that's what we will be doing this month. We'll be making our way through four decades, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. We will see one movie per decade. Rob became aware of tonight's entry mere moments before we started to watch the movie. It is the 1934 film of Human Bondage, the story of a young man's obsession with a woman who's more than a bit of a bee. So, Rob, what are your initial impressions of of Human Bondage? You have to give it respect for the era it came from, but eh. You were eh? Towards the human bondage? This reminds me in some ways of, or I could see this, elements of this having served as inspiration for Phantom Thread. Yeah. I don't understand someone who perpetually chooses someone who treats them yeah. so terribly. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't click. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't, yeah, not at all. Well, huh, that kind of response is interesting because I was really not sure what you'd think of this movie. And I was curious to see what your take would be on it. Now, when I, I find myself trying to imagine seeing this either when it came out or in the subsequent two to three decades even. Mm-hmm. You know, we're viewing this with the benefit of nearly 90 years advantage at this point. Or what year was this? 34. So yeah, we're approaching, we're 88 years after this was released. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to make some comments like what I'm making, but this could have been very much better at the time that it was released or, mm. you know, better received or things like that. But for me, it just doesn't, that type of storyline doesn't quite resonate. Yeah. So I had originally thought when, when we were thinking about this month, like a year ago, that I was going to select a film called My Man Godfrey, starring William Powell and Carol Lombard from 1936 that is a crowd favorite it's an easy to like film I wanted to do something a little more challenging to see what kind of reaction I'd get and also one I I do think this is a quite quite a good movie and there's another reason film history reason why I wanted to make this our selection can you guess what that reason is not off the top of what is the significance of of human bondage I assume, well, my only guess would be, you know, something relating to one or more of the actors. Mm. Yes, this is the film that made Betty Davis a star. And she does have a unique appearance. Her eyes are very unique. Yeah, her eyes, uh, she has Betty Davis eyes in the word of the uh, 80s song. She does have a a unique look to her. The, The joke about her, especially as she got on in years, was that Betty Davis will bluff you into thinking she's a beautiful woman. But she's quite attractive in this. She's fairly young. Davis had been around for some time when she got this part, but principally playing like the second or third female leads in films. Uh, She was in Waterloo Bridge. She was in Three on a Match. When the studio was preparing to make this film, which is adapted from a novel by W. Somerset Maugham, they knew that this was a big part, and they cast a wide net. And they kept getting turned down. This was offered, reportedly, to Katherine Hepburn, wow. Irene Dunn, and Anne Harding. Uh, Anne Harding having just won an Oscar for Best Actress a couple of years earlier. 
and all of them turned it down. And reportedly, the reason they turned it down was they were afraid it would affect their image because Mildred is such a bee. But Betty Davis, who was going nowhere in his career, said, I'll take this. This is my chance to break in. And she did. And for the next roughly 20 years, she was a super bankable star. And had she not taken the risk, Catherine Hepburn taking this part, or Irene Dunn, she might just be a footnote in, in film history. So this is a very significant film for her. So you did enjoy her performance, or what, what did you take from that performance? I mean, it's easy to appreciate her physical appearance. I mentioned the eyes. You mentioned she's very young and attractive in this. I, I didn't care for the character, but she portrays it well. Yeah. She's doing a Cockney accent. Yeah. Uh, she's playing a uh, barmaid who, Leslie Howard, whose character's name is Philip Carey, just falls for. She's actually brought in by a friend of his from medical school to see if he can put in a good word for her, for him, with yeah. her. And uh, it goes disastrously. The friend instantly decides, you know, she's not what I thought she was. I'm sorry I brought you out here. You ready to get on the bus? No, I think I'll stay here and have some more tea. And while he was teasing her at first, he was he was instantly smitten. And the film follows the next however many years as he keeps going back to her. He is in human bondage. And the film has a very jaundiced view of romance. There's a line in there where it talks about there's usually one who loves and one who is loved. Yeah. And there's a series of unequally yoked relationships throughout this film. Yeah, pretty much all involving Leslie Howard. Yeah. But yeah. Leslie Howard is an interesting enough actor. He is uh, best remembered for playing Ashley Wilkes in uh, Gone with the Wind, in which he is in another kind of unequal relationship with Vivian Lee, who is obsessed with him, but he prefers. Olivia de Havilland, who's a much more pleasant person, so he gets the better end of the deal in in that film. I wanted to talk a little bit, just trivia-wise, about the circumstances of the death of Leslie Howard. So, Leslie Howard Steiner, 1893 through 1943, native of London, England, had a career both in the old country and in the United States. So his death, and I'm taking information here from Wikipedia, in May of 1943, Howard traveled to Portugal to promote the British cause. He stayed in Mount Estrol at the Hotel Alticanto between the 1st of May and the 4th of May, then again between the 8th of May and the 10th of May, and again between June the 25th, or between the 25th of May and the 31st of May, 1943. The following day, the 1st of June, 1943, he was aboard KLM Royal Dutch Airlines BOC Flight 777, GAAGBB, a Douglas DC-3 flying from Lisbon to Bristol when it was shot down by Luftwaffe Junkers JU-88 C-6 maritime fighter aircraft over the Atlantic off Kaderia A. Corona. He was among the 17 fatalities, including four KLM flight crew. According to German documents, the DC-3 was shot down at, and then it gives the coordinates, some 500 miles from Bordeaux, France, and 200 miles northwest of La Corona, Spain. Luftwaffe records indicate that the Ju-88 maritime fighters were operating beyond their normal patrol area to intercept and shoot down the aircraft. First, Oberlieutenant Hertz Heinz, and then they give more uh, ranks, I guess, for him, and based in Bordeaux, 
stated that this Defal shot down the DC-3 because it recognized it as an enemy aircraft. following day, a search of the waters on the route undertaken by uh, such-and-such such short Sutherland flying boat from number such-and-such Near the same coordinates where the DC-3 was shot down, the Sunderland was attacked by eight uh, JU-88s, and after fierce battle, it managed to shoot down three of the attackers with an additional three possibilities before crash-landing at Press Sands near Presence. In the aftermath of these two actions, all BOAC flights from Lisbon were rerouted and operated only under the cover of darkness. The news of Howard's death was published in the same issue of the Times that reported the death, quote-unquote, of Major William Martin, the man who never was created for the ruse involved in Operation Mincemeat. There's actually various theories uh, relating to Leslie Howard's death, and perhaps my favorite is that he was apparently accompanied on this flight by his agent, a man who bore a resemblance to Winston Churchill, and reportedly may have been mistaken for such by the Germans, which is why the aircraft was operating outside of its usual patrol to try to kill the Prime Minister. That is an interesting theory. So, anyway, yeah, he's an interesting enough actor. There's good sporting players in this film. The two love interests. I like Kate Johnson as Nora, and I also enjoyed Francis D. as Sally. Francis D., we have a little callback connection to Preston Sturgis' mom, because she was married for 57 years to Joel McRae. Yeah. Kate Johnson was married to the director John Cromwell. Together they produced the actor James Cromwell. Okay. And I don't know if you noticed uh, Kate Johnson's nose, but that's where James gets it. Yeah. Rather prominent nose on an otherwise quite beautiful woman. But yeah, Betty Davis, of course, is good. I do prefer her in her more sympathetic parts, like in Now Voyager or Dark Victory, but obviously this got her noticed and really started her career. The film packs a lot of story into about 82 minutes. That's an hour and 22-minute running time. It is uh, heavily condensed from W. Somerset Mons' 1915 novel. My understanding is that the Mildred storyline takes up approximately a third of the 648-page book, uh, which quite well received and was listed on the Modern Library list of the 100 greatest English-language novels of the 20th century, at number 66. Hmm. I think this is probably the fourth or so time that I've seen this, fourth or fifth, something like that. I had more of a reaction to it, I think, than you did. I remember just wanting to talk at the screen and yell at him for being such an idiot. Yeah. And that just absolute obsession that he has with her, and she is just awful to him. And he re multiple times reconfigures his life around her and she is just not capable well, and of he gratitude. has Sally played by Francis D who is just madly in love with him yeah. from the get go and who clearly adores him and he already knows Mildred played by Bette Davis, Betty Davis's true character mm. and he still can't can't quite yeah and until until uh, Mildred passes away he can't commit to Sally, and he's planning to <laughs> yeah. even leave the country. He's going to be a doctor on a cruise ship, a cruise line, to get away from Mildred and can't commit to Sally. But then when he finds out Mildred's dead, he makes, you know, yeah. then he wants to marry Sally very quickly, and it just, yeah, yeah it just doesn't resonate well for me, and I, I don't understand that type of character. Uh. It's just not a character I've ever, ever understood. Mm-hmm. We will long disagree on whether Phantom Thread was or was not a good movie. (laughs) 
but it, it reminds me very heavily of that. Yeah. Yeah, I you know I hadn't really made that connection until you brought it up, but yeah, they are of the similar self-destructive, unequally yoked relationship. Though in some ways, that relationship in Phantom Thread ends more functionally in a really, really sick way than this film does. Mildred did have to die to make Philip free. I did want to circle back briefly to, to, to two other things that we kind of glossed over. So the um, Well, and then I have a question for you, but okay. go ahead. So the Kay Johnson role, the Nora role. Uh-huh. She was great. Yeah. He, he had a great thing going. Yeah. He, he ultimately ended up with, I think, the uh, of the three women, probably the most desirable of the three, both physically and in terms of personality. But Kay Johnson was a catch. Yeah. You know, he, he could have had a happy life with her, and she would have been a very good doctor's wife. Yeah. And would have really helped him. And I think it's interesting well, that she, she was a Well, she could have been an independent woman. You yeah, know, she, like, she wrote yeah. romance, and so she had money. And obviously Mildred didn't, and... Sally isn't from money, but she's got a very nice father who, who's a friend of, of Philip's who always complains about his nine kids that we only ever see the one. Yeah. And then there's the prologue portion in France, which is interesting, where he had gone down there to be an artist. He seems to be quite technically capable of imitative of other artists. And there is a teacher that he quite trusts and he decides to, to go to him and said you gotta frank me is it worth me spending my time on this or not and so he says well take me back to your studio let me see your work and says I'm sorry son but you're just mediocre and you know it'd be a shame to find out you're mediocre later in life when you've committed yourself to this do something else and fortunately Philip has a backup plan that he's had since he was a child his father was a doctor he has a club foot, which is a uh, source of strain throughout uh, the film. He's kind of obsessed with his foot, which eventually he does have corrected surgically. But he decides to go to uh, back to England and to pursue that. And it, it feels like there's just a lot of story that isn't on the screen, and we know there is from you know what we've heard about the film being only you know this story being only about a third of, of a rather epic novel. There is another version of Human Bondage, which was made 30 years later in 1964, starring Lawrence Harvey and Kim Novak, but it just does this same portion of the novel as well. And I don't hmm. know if the entire novel has ever been done as a miniseries or something like that. It is on my list to read. I have a copy of it. Yeah. But yeah, there's, this is the part that gets people's attention. This is what people remember. You said you had a question for me. I didn't understand... I understand the ending in terms of Philip and Sally. Why the heck was the taxi following him and keeps asking him if he wants a taxi ride? That that didn't make any sense. I don't, yeah. They wanted that shot of them leaving on the taxi, I guess. Yeah, that is kind of a weird little thing. I did like some of the visual flourishes in this film. They have a lot of dissolves. They have a lot of layered shots. I mean, it's visually quite interesting. As, as I'm watching the early sequences where he's having these dream versions of his uh, dates with Mildred going much better and her saying she loves, loves him and just the way they did the dissolves and things faded over each other. I'm like, man, my own fantasy life could have much more, could be much more visually interesting. I should take this into account. <laughs> well, you said you liked this film quite a bit. How would you rate this film? This is a four-star movie. 
You think and so? I'm grading it a bit on a curve. And I, I think you're right that this is one you need to... I mean, for 1934, it both has the kind of the seamy quality that we associate with uh, some pre-code films, but it also has this really strong literary pedigree. And it's got fine performances. Uh, none of them... Uh, I mean, Leslie Howard's good, and obviously Betty Davis is really good, and everybody else is pretty good. And again, visually, I like the Max Steiner score that was reused in some other things. And it's nice and short. And I, I think that helps it, because I don't think this is a story you'd want drug out much more than they drug it out. I actually, even at its short length, got bored a couple times. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, because he just kind of repeats this loop yeah. time and time again. But yeah, I'm giving this four stars on the four star scale, and I'm give it nine on the ten star scale. You know, I'm giving this a bump because I I recognize that for 1934, this was ahead of its time and was well executed, all of those types of things, but it really doesn't resonate for me. And even with the bump, I'm giving it two and a half and seven. So Not so much your thing. Now, again, like this type of storyline just doesn't resonate with me. I can appreciate certain aspects of this film, but but that's that's about it. Well, that's what I got. I was going to glance and see if there was any interesting trivia. I guess in later years, Betty Davis said that she found Leslie Howard very frosty, and this actually helped her performance, particularly for the scenes requiring her to be horrible to him. (laughs) This was released on June 28, 1934, just three days before strict enforcement of the Motion Picture Production Code. Uh, I got that in the wire. Yeah. The paintings of nude women that Philip Carey cherished were the last such images to be seen in an American film for many years. The opening shot of the film, before the title appears, shows the Eiffel Tower at dusk just as as lights come on to spell out the word Citroën in huge letters. The French car company, Citroën, paid to have this nightly advertisement on the tower from 1925 to 1934. It was made of 250,000 lights and was reportedly visible for 20 miles. When Citroen encountered financial difficulties in 1934, the contract was not renewed, and the lights were removed. Modern-day audiences are often surprised to learn that the Eiffel Tower was ever used for advertising. Hmm. Interesting. The failure of the original copyright holder, again, this this is relevant because this being Public Public Domain Domain Month, to renew the film's copyright resulted in it falling into public domain, meaning that virtually anyone could duplicate and sell a VHS or DVD copy of the film. Therefore, many of the versions of this film available on the market are either severely or usually bad, badly edited and or of extremely poor quality, having been duped from second or third generation or more copies of the film. This has been in the public domain since 1962. Oh, wow. Included in the American Film Institute's 2002 list of 400 movies nominated for the Top 100 America's Greatest Love Stories Movies. Those were the only other items I had for this. Do you know how this did in the box office? I'm not seeing any numbers. I would imagine uh, that it did uh, pretty well. It's almost, it makes me think, you know, now that we know that it was released so close to the enforcement of the production code that it could have been treated like those last few days that you could buy liquor before Prohibition. So I've got to go in and see some racy fare while we still can. The film has an 86% Rotten Tomatoes rating and an IMDb score of 7 out of 10. Yep. Anything else? No. Okay. 
week one of public domain. I'm intrigued to see where we go from here. Um, return. I'm intrigued by this one a decade format okay. and interested to see where the month goes. So. Yeah, so we'll return next week with the 1940s. I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. I don't think they'll be that long this month. Probably not. Say that again? I don't think the episodes will be particularly long this month. Oh, don't you? That's my theory. Yeah. And you're sticking to it? Indeed. You ready? Ready. We are recording this the day that another Prime Minister was figuratively killed. Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson. Uh, <laughs> May have to edit Stepping that. down. <laughs>